You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. John 12, verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Heavenly Father, we look to you and we pray, Father, that you would teach us this morning. Instruct us this morning, Father. In short, speak to us. Speak to our hearts by opening your word, O Father, to them. And open our hearts, O Father, to your precious word. And Father, may we not just be granted a superficial level of understanding of these verses, but Father, we pray that, Lord, you would arrest our hearts with them, and that, Father, you would align our hearts with the truths that are here, O Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, if we just start with verse 20... There we see among those who went up to worship at the feast. And uh, this reminds us of the time frame that we're looking at this morning. The time frame is the last and final Passover of Jesus' earthly ministry. And uh, this may recall to our minds a text that I had been um, making some noise about. In in chapter 11, verse 55, uh, we see the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And again, um, I I still would like to keep that ball bouncing, this idea of of, uh, preparation. You know, they're making preparation to attend, uh, to uh, come to the Passover feast. And, uh, of course, uh, the application of that today is to make preparations to the gospel Passover as we prepare our hearts on the first Sunday of each month to Uh, to come to the Lord's table, uh, but more uh, regularly uh, preparing our hearts to come here. Um, And it's something that's really easy to do. Uh, Saturday comes, you've got 90 million things you want to get done, and and, uh, it's easy, you know, it's it's Saturday night. uh, But um, it's good to get in the habit of beginning to uh, prepare our hearts. And as we think of our hearts, as we think of ourselves, uh, we want to always include each other in those prayers, you know, as we, as we pray, Lord, prepare, uh, don't just prepare my heart for uh, tomorrow, if you will, but uh, pre- prepare, uh, prepare our hearts um, uh, for tomorrow. Uh, this would be a, a, a Saturday uh, prayer, if you will. And um, so it's, it's a reminder of that. Now, among those, if we go back to chapter 12, verse 20, among those who went up to worship at the feast were uh, some Greeks. So Jerusalem is swelling up with people right now. Uh, they're swelling up with people who are coming, making pilgrimage from all over uh, the land in order to attend the Passover. And we are told that among those who are coming in uh, were some Greeks. Now, uh, who are these individuals? We don't know a whole lot about them because uh, the word Greeks is a really broad term. Uh, it can speak to um, anyone really that is Greek speaking uh, or anyone who is participating at least some degree in Greek culture. And I say that because it's not necessarily somebody who's from Greece. Um, it could be somebody from uh, really throughout the Holy Land who is Greek speaking. Now, I think the best, uh, the best um, interpretation of this would be the God-fearers. You hear about the God-fearers. Uh, who were the God-fearers? Uh, uh, these would be Gentiles who had come to adopt 
um, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, who had come to adopt um, Judaism, if you will, and really had converted to Judaism all the way uh, just falling short of circumcision. They did not undergo uh, circumcision. So they hadn't really fully uh, committed themselves uh, to becoming Jews, if you will. And they come up to worship. Now, uh, you'll recall from uh, previous messages, it's been quite a while, but uh, in the temple facility, uh, the only place that these Greeks or these God-fearers uh, would be able to participate would be the outer court uh, of the temple precinct. And you may recall, and all the way back in chapter 2 of John's gospel, uh, John records for us Jesus going into that outer court and doing what? Um, he clears the temple, doesn't he? Because it was there where the money changers had their tables set up. It was there where they were really bringing in livestock there. Uh, and they were uh, really cashing in, uh, and Jesus clears them out of there. And it could be, it could be there where they first encountered Jesus. Um, we have a re John records uh, a temple cleansing at the beginning of his gospel, and the uh, Matthew, Mark, and and Luke record one at the end of their gospel. Uh, this caused a lot of heartburn for interpreters. Uh, some try to collide the two into one, but I think the simple explanation is there are two separate incidents where Jesus does this twice. He does it at the beginning of his ministry. He does it at the end of his ministry. So this would be one place where these uh, Greek-speaking folks may have encountered Jesus. They may have encountered Jesus uh, out in Bethsaida because you, you look in verse 21, they come to Philip who was from Bethsaida. Now that's conjecture. Uh, we, we really don't know for sure. Uh, they could have just been from Galilee. And if that's the case, Jesus spent a lot of time in Galilee. They may have heard him preach uh, uh, in Galilee. Again, uh, we, uh, we don't know. Um, but what we do know in verse 21 is their desire is to see Jesus. You see that at the end of verse 21. Um, they ask Philip, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, they're not just wishing to see him from afar. What are they wanting to do? They're wanting to have audience with him. They're wanting to sit down with him. They, they want to get as much time with him as they can get. Uh, they, want, they, they want to get to know him, if you will. Uh, they're truly seeking him. And the significance of this cannot be overstated. And I, and I am indebted to uh, Leon Morris, actually, for the point that uh, I'm going to make here. This is highly significant. And uh, let me think of what, I think maybe the best way to explain the significance of this is for us to go think back. We don't need to turn there, but think back to John 3.16. We all know that verse, you know, the one that was up on the billboards for all those years. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I know it's been a long time since we were on that verse, but how did we define world when we were on that verse? For God so loved the world. Uh, is world defined as the birds and the trees, the sun, moon, and stars, the landscapes, the sunsets? Uh, well, we would say God loves those things for sure. He created those things. But the con the, just the context of the verse dictates uh, what is meant by the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him. So the son is given for sinful humanity. And of course, in this verse, uh, there's, a, there's a contrast that's implied in this verse so that whoever believes in him, doesn't that imply that some will not believe in him? And here you have a comparison or a contrast. I mean, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Okay, what, what is clearly meant by world in that text? Sinful humanity in opposition to God. Sinful humanity in opposition to God. Not just Jewish people, uh, but people from all over the world. Now, the significance of this particular text, and again, I'm indebted to Leon Morris for this, is that Jesus' ministry has largely been confined to the Jews, hasn't it? And now, in the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, here come some Greeks. 
and they're seeking Jesus. Now, Jesus has told us something about this that we mustn't forget. He says, all the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. And he points. He says in another place, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So what's going on here on a divine level is the Father is drawing the rest of the world to Jesus. Do you see the significance of this? I think that's why this particular text is where it is. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's days away from going to the cross, and he is going to die for the world, isn't he? He's going to die for people from all tribes, nations, tongues, and nations. And here comes some Greek-speaking people, and what do they want? They want to see Jesus. Now, how does Jesus respond to them? It might seem kind of strange at first. Sometimes that's the case, isn't it? Where we see Jesus' responses and we scratch our heads and we think, that's a, that's a strange response until we come to understand it. And then we say, oh, okay, I get it. Sometimes it's a long time before the light bulb goes off. But, um, but notice how Jesus responds. They, the, the Greeks come to Philip. Philip grabs Andrew, tells him what's going on, and Philip and Andrew go to Jesus, and they tell Jesus, there's some Greeks, they're wanting to see you, and, and Jesus responds in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, this is really significant. I think most, probably many of us know why, and I just want to quickly take you through uh, this, whole, this whole thing. I want you to see how this develops. If you turn back to chapter 2, it's been a long time since we were clear back in chapter 2. Uh, but there you, you, you go back to the wedding, uh, the first miracle that's recorded in John's gospel here is a wedding at Cana. And uh, the mother of Jesus was there. That's verse 1. Uh, verse 2, Jesus is invited to the wedding. Verse 3, the wine runs out. And the mother of Jesus said to, said to Jesus, they have no wine. And notice how Jesus responds to her in verse 4. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, if we're reading John's gospel for the first time, we might come to this uh, statement here, and we might say, hmm, my hour has not yet come. What does he mean by that? And what do you do when you come to a, a passage in Scripture like that that you don't quite understand, you don't quite get? What do you do? Well, you ponder on it. Uh, you pray over it. But... One thing that's always helpful to do is keep reading. Just make a note of it and keep reading, because a lot of times as you keep reading, the answer uh, will come as you keep reading. And John will unfold what he means by that. If you turn from there to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, it's been a while since we've been here, but the Feast of Booths at hand, timing-wise, it's about six months earlier than the text we come to this morning. It's in the fall. The Feast of Booths is at hand. And um, we learn in verse 1 at this point that the Jews are seeking to kill him. They've been seeking to kill him for some time. And um, uh, his brothers, verse 3, said to him, uh, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also must see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. What are they saying? Go in publicly into this feast and make a big fanfare. Everybody will see you. And notice how Jesus responds to them in verse 6. He says, my time has not yet come. And that, we spent some time on that way back when we were in there because it can be confusing because it sounds like Jesus, Jesus comes out and says he's not going, but then he turns around and goes. And what does he mean by that? What he means by that is he's not going publicly the way they want him to go. Uh, he, he goes in kind of discreetly. And uh, he says, my, my time has not yet come. Now, if you look at verse 30, um, I think it's verse 30, yeah, they were, Jesus goes to the feast. Uh, they're seeking to arrest him in verse 30, uh, but no one laid hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And while he's still at the, ve at the feast, if you look at chapter 8, verse 20, chapter 8, verse 20, um, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And then we return to our text, and we return to verse 23, and some Greeks are wanting to see Jesus. They go to Philip, Philip to Andrew, Philip and Andrew to Jesus. There's some Greeks that want to see you. Jesus responds, the hour has come. 
the hour's here. Now you see how that develops? The hour's here. Now, um, we, we should be able to figure out what's going on just from the context that we've read so far. Uh, what, what is this hour? What is Jesus' hour? It's the, it's the hour that he will lay his life down for those whom he has come to save, isn't it? It's the hour that he will come to uh, the cross. But verse 24 makes it really clear with what Jesus says next. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What a masterful teacher. And what a masterful illustration. Now, speaking to people who make their living from farming. If you don't sow any seeds, what's going to happen is you're not going to have any crop, are you? But as you think of a single grain, a single seed of, of grain, it, it, it goes into the earth and dies. And, and through its death, it becomes fruitful and produces many, many other uh, not only a crop, but uh, many other seeds. And uh, by this metaphor, uh, Jesus is not only speaking of his death, but he's speaking of the necessity of his death, isn't he? If, if, if seeds aren't planted, they're not gonna be any, there's not going to be any crop. Uh, there's not going to be any life uh, if the seed isn't planted. And this recalls Caiaphas' words in chapter 11, you know, in verse 50, the council's together. They're conspiring. How are we going to get rid of Jesus? At the end of verse 49, Caiaphas, he's listening to them. He says to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas doesn't care about Jesus. He wants rid of Jesus. But the funny thing and the astounding thing about that is he's actually prophesying. Um, God can use anyone uh, to convey his message, can he? Um, he uses, you know, he can use Balaam, he can use Caiaphas, he can use anybody. He even uses a donkey on one occasion. Um, so he can use uh, anyone. And here's, the, uh, here's the, the story. It's the necessity of Jesus' death. Jesus' death will yield life to millions. Now, a question before we move on. How can an agonizing and humiliating death um, like the crucifixion. The crucifixion was a form of execution that was used only for the worst of criminals uh, in this time. And, and it's hard to devise in your mind a worse form of execution than crucifixion. How could a crucifixion be glorifying? Because if you look there, what is Jesus saying in verse 23? The hour has come. Now, we know that hour, that hours, it, it, it pertains to Jesus' death. We know Jesus dies by crucifixion. Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, do you understand my question? How could Jesus be glorified? I mean, they stripped him of all of his clothes. They hung him on a tree publicly in front of a mocking crowd. How could Jesus possibly be glorified by that? And I'll give you three answers this morning. One we've already touched on. Uh, he is glorified by being the author or the founder or the captain of our salvation. You know, I, you don't need to turn there. I'm going to have you flipping around here in a few minutes enough. I don't want to do it more than I have to. But um, I like asking you to turn to passages from time to time so that it helps you remember where they're at. This one, don't worry about. I'm just going to read it to you as soon as I find it. It comes from Hebrews chapter 2, and it's verse 10. And there, um, there we're told it was fitting that he, that is for Jesus, it was fitting uh, for he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was fitting for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. They should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And we could say founder, we could say author, we could say captain. You know, I, I, I memorized this, uh, at least the second half of this verse many years ago in the King James translation. It's captain 
I just thought that was cool, the captain of our salvation. He is the captain of our salvation. Uh, author is used by a number of translations. I think the NIV uses author. Uh, the, the ESV using founder. I think it's good to, 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 to see the window of those, uh, to have those running in your mind. The founder, the author, the captain of our salvation. How is Jesus glorified by that? Why are we sitting here this morning? And would we be sitting here this morning praising God if he had not gone to the cross? Would our hearts be stolen from us by his love if it were not for the cross? <laughs> I mean, how, how could he communicate uh, his love to us any more deeply than by saying, listen, I, I'll, I, you, you go over here. You step aside and let me go in your place. Let me take those sins away from you. Let me take that guilt away from you. Let me wash you. You realize that every occupant in heaven is going to have the same testimony. It's, it, it's uh, you know, it's all to him we owe, isn't it? Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. You know, sin has left its crimson stain. He washed us whiter than snow, didn't he? I mean, the moment he said it is finished on that cross, it, our atonement was made. That's the first. How about the second? Well, I would ask you, if you don't mind, to turn to Philippians. You know, keep your place in John 12. And turn to Philippians. Just turn left and go past the Corinthians. And first and second Corinthians. And past Ephesians. And you'll get to Philippians chapter 2. Let me begin reading with verse 5. Because we're going to get two more answers to our questions just from this text here, uh, verses 5 through 11, where the Apostle Paul, writing to the Philippians and through them to us, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Two key words here, humble and obedient. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. By this decisive act that Jesus takes upon the cross, he will be glorified by every human being who's ever been conceived. Those who embrace him as their savior, those who reject him as a fraud, all will equally bend the knee and bow to his lordship. Uh, those on the earth as well as those under the earth. Why? Because he humbled, he, he was willing to humble himself and endure the shame of the cross. He humbled himself and endured the shame of the cross, but also, thirdly, his obedience to the Father was perfect. Even obedience that would take you to such a degree uh, that he would die uh, upon uh, the cross, this perfect obedience to the will of the Father. So there are three ways that he is glorified. I'm not saying this is the only three ways, but there are three ways. We like threes, you know, three points, three ways, three. It's like threes, so uh, half three. Now, Jesus, back to John chapter 12, he makes application. He makes application in verses 25 and 26. Notice what he says there. Curiously, he says, whoever loves his life will lose it. It's a curious statement, isn't it? It's a curious statement. It's a, the curiosity is, I think, um, settled as soon as we understand, well, what is Jesus doing? He's getting ready to lose his life, isn't he? He's laying his life down. He's laying his self-interest aside. 
that's what's in view there. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, it's important that we understand here that life is not life absolutely. Um, we're not being called here to hate life. There's enough of that going on. And Becky brought up a violence in East End. You know, it's conducted routinely. Um, I don't know what the situation in East End is. I have no idea what's going on down there. But uh, a lot of times, uh, some of these things are going as if people just hate life. They just hate life, and there's a lot of that going on. Jesus is not calling us to hate life. We have to pay very close attention to the, um, the context here. Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it. And then there's a parallel statement that comes after the comma. And whoever hates his life in this world. It's important that we hang on to that little preposition phrase there, in this world. Uh, we could paraphrase this. Uh, for clarity by saying whoever loves his life in this world loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. Does that make sense? I think that makes it a little clearer. It's a little more wordier, but it makes it a little bit clearer. We're not called to hate life. Uh, it's life in this world um, as the parallel communicates to it. And there's an important principle here, really important, a number of them. Uh, and I think one way to 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 understand this, what Jesus is communicating to us is just some spiritual laws that exist. You know, there are some spiritual laws here uh, that Jesus is, is trying to communicate to us. He says, whoever loves his life uh, loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world, um, uh, or, or whoever, I'm sorry, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world uh, will keep it. Now, to understand this, let's suppose the opposite. Why is Jesus speaking these words? Because he's speaking to people who love their lives in this world. That's the fallen, that's, that's, that's the course of fallen humanity, isn't it? And what does it mean to love our lives in this world? What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about this selfish uh, walk in this world. He's, there, there are two kingdoms here. There's the kingdom of darkness. There's the kingdom of light. There's the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of the evil one. There's the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is doing, he's calling us out of the kingdom of darkness, isn't it? And what are the ways of the kingdom of darkness? The ways of the kingdom of darkness is to see this life as the sum total of everything. There's nothing else but this life. And we're going to make heaven right here, right now. Um, we're, going to, we're going to make this as much like heaven as we possibly can. So the entire focus is on the here and now. It's on this life. There's, there's popular books that are written, Your Best Life Now. Uh, that would be loving your life. That would, be, um, that would be exactly what Jesus is calling us out of. Uh, they're bestsellers. Why are, uh, why are uh, books like that bestsellers? Because it resonates with fallen humanity, resonates with our sinful nature. That's what we want. We want our best life, and we want it right now, don't we? And that's what Jesus is calling us to forsake. Now, um, there's a, there, there's, let, let's, let's analyze it for a moment. What takes place as we spiritually, what takes place with us spiritually as we love our lives in this world more than anything Else. Well, we won't give them up. We're not going to give them up. We're not going to lay them down. Um, we love what God has given us more than God himself. You hear me say that stuff a lot. I think this actually is a, a good way to share the gospel. Because um, how many of you find it attractive when you bump into children that very clearly love the stuff their parents give them more than they love their parents. Does anybody in this room find that to be an attractive thing? We hate that, don't we? Don't you want to say, you little brats, what you need is a boot and a rear? And don't you, don't you even kind of want to offer the boot? I've got one right here. Two of them, actually. And my grandfather was good for that. He'd give you a boot in the rear now, I'll tell you. He'd take your feet, both feet off the ground. Um, it was always, always well-deserved. He wasn't afraid to use it. That's how we feel when we see that, isn't it? You realize it's actually a mirror. 
when we see, and, and, and you ever realize this, some of the things that we're most guilty of, we hate when we see in other people. Have you ever noticed that? Some of the sins that we're most guilty of ourselves, we despise when we see in the other guy. Look at that other guy. What's he doing? <laughs> well, and your sweetie just listens to you, you know. She's just listening to you thinking, well, you do exactly the same thing. He's doing what you do all the time. Why are you getting so, why are you getting upset, why are you getting so upset with him? This is what we constantly default to, is loving the things that our Heavenly Father has given us more than we love our Heavenly Father. You know, it could be our abilities that are exercised in our careers. It could be our children. It could be your grandchildren. It could be any, whatever your heart goes on about. Um, we love what God has given us more than God himself. What does that make us? It makes us that little spoiled brat that we want to put a boot to. Uh, he becomes a mirror in which we see ourselves We, um, the, the problem with this is we're never going to turn to God unless we get delivered from that. See, that's why we're going to, that's why we'll ultimately lose if we're of that disposition. Is because we're never going to let go and turn to God. Second thing is we replace God with self. Self says, no, you're not going to go that direction. Self says, you're going to do this, 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 and this. Jesus says, come to me. Self says, no. Not going to come to you. Um, self says no. Um, uh, self actually rises to um, the throne, if you will, and self will get what self wants. Uh, thirdly, we deny God the thanksgiving and worship that is His for giving us life. Um, I don't know how many times each of our hearts beat in a minute. Probably vary if you're in pretty good shape. Perhaps it's down in the 60s somewhere. Uh, if we're just in average shape, maybe it's, I don't know, you guys tell me 75 beats per minute, maybe. Maybe 90. Some of us might be up in the 90s. It's going to vary. Let's say we have an average of 75. That's 75 times every minute. We're in here for 100 minutes. That's a lot of beats, isn't it? 7,500 beats. Give me 7,500 reps, says the coach. That's a lot of reps. Hope he's not talking about push-ups or deep knee bends. We, we actually owe God for each one of those beats, don't we? I mean, we don't concern ourselves with a beating heart until it stops. Until we see that flat line. Then that beat that we've taken for granted for all these years becomes everything, doesn't it? When we see the flat line. Every blip on that little screen is given to us by our Father, isn't it? Fourthly, we deny His right to command us how we should live in His world. We live how we want to live instead of how He tells us to live. Who would think, I mean, imagine inviting a guest into your home. The guest is not in your home but 20 minutes, and an owl's giving you, ordering you around. And telling you the new, this is, these are the new rules in this house. <laughs> Some of you are quite patient. You might deal with that for a little while, but I'm guessing, I'm guessing you're not going to deal with that for very long, are you? Again, try to imagine that guest who's in your home acting this way. And what do we see in him? I think we see another mirror, don't we? Because this isn't our house. This world isn't our world. We didn't create it. These aren't even our bodies. We didn't make them. Uh, it is in our air that we're breathing. Uh, we don't own anything. That's, I mean, we're at best, we're just tenants for a short period of time, and then we make way for somebody else. And, and that, that's what Jesus is driving at here, because whoever, whoever loves his life is, is going to be on a path here that's going to make it impossible for them to turn to the Lord. And as a, as a result of that, um, they're, they're not going to turn to the Lord, and they're going to lose their lives. 
Um, Jesus is not calling us to hate life. He's calling us to hate life in this world. And again, hatred's not used in the absolute sense either. Uh, to, to the ancient Jew, a lot of times when they, they would speak of hatred not in the absolute literal sense, they'd speak of hatred in a comparative sense. So it would go like this. Jesus is calling us to love the next world. He's calling us to love the kingdom of heaven with such a great love that when you take that love and you compare it to the love that we have for this life, it comes out looking like hatred. It's not that we hate. It's a comparison thing. It's that we love one so much more than we love the other one. To the degree it could be said that uh, in comparison, we hate uh, life in this world. Uh, you know, one thing I learned from Richard Baxter many, many years ago, the uh, famous Puritan preacher, is that God is not teaching us to hate life here. In fact, he uses, us, he uses our love of life in order to motivate us to take eternal life, doesn't he? I mean, the, what's the motivator here? The motivator here is eternal life, isn't it? Isn't that the motivation in verse 25? Listen, whoever loves his life loses it. Well, we don't want to do that because we love life, right? But whoever loses his life, uh, uh, whoever hates his life in this world, uh, will keep it for eternal life. Well, we want to live, don't we? And isn't God using the desire to want to live to motivate us in this verse? Of course he is. So he's not calling us to hate uh, life, if you will. Uh, it's love of life that Jesus uses to motivate us. Therefore, Jesus is not calling us to hate love. Now, but what is Jesus calling us to do? And what does this look like? And I would ask you to turn to Matthew 13 because this is my go-to. These, these are two of my, I think they're my favorite parables of all the parables that Jesus teaches. Matthew 13 You've heard me quote these many times, but I want to I want to look at them a little closer than I normally how I would quote them. Verse forty four. Jesus says, "The kingdom of heaven," and that would be the kingdom of God as well. Matthew is fond of using the kingdom of heaven. The other gospel writers are fond of using the kingdom of God. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, what's going on there? Oh, here are the, 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 the men in these two parables. They find something very valuable, don't they? They find something that's so valuable that they're willing to get rid of everything so that they can have it. No question. There's no contest. This is so supremely valuable that I will depart. I'll I, I quickly, I don't need the time to deliberate. I'll get rid of everything that I have. Anything that's in the way of having this, anything that needs to be sold in order to raise the money to have this, um, whatever it takes, this is what I want. Now, you hear me quote this all the time, and I talk about Jesus being the pearl. He's the pearl of great price, right? Jesus is the pearl uh, of or the treasure of these parables. It is he. But I want to call your attention here to the context. Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like this. He's not just calling attention to himself here. He's calling attention to the kingdom here, isn't he? What makes the kingdom so wonderful? It's the king. It's the king of the kingdom that makes it so wonderful. But Jesus is including the kingdom, isn't he? He's saying the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. As much as he loves all these things, in comparison to his love of what he has just discovered in the kingdom of heaven, it's almost as if he hates those things. He can depart with them. 
Whereas before, he couldn't let go of them, you see. He wasn't able to let go of them. He held on to them. He clutched on to them. He wanted to add to them. He was all about gathering things, but then he discovers this one thing, and what happens? He's willing to get rid of everything in order to have it. Why? It's because it's a lovely kingdom. And why is it so lovely? Because Christ is its king. That's why. Now, if we go on in this life loving this world, the things of this world, the ways of this world, It'll end in our destruction. Leon Morris puts it this way. Jesus is saying that anyone who loves his life is destroying it. That's what everybody's doing. We talk about smoking causing cancer. Talk about drinking causing these various problems. We talk about some of these other toxic things, eating too much sugar and all these. Loving our lives in this world is actually more toxic than all of those things. And engaging in that business, actually, is the business of self-destruction, isn't it? Does that make sense? It's self-destruction. Why? Because at the end of the day, we're preferring the kingdom of darkness over the kingdom of God. That's what we'll always do unless God intervenes. You know, the principle that we're studying, and back to John chapter 12, the prin- you know what? No, no. Don't go back to John chapter 12 just yet. Now, before you do that, listen to these verses. I'm not going to ask you to turn to all these verses, but I, I want to bring your attention here to how many times this principle is repeated in the four Gospels. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 30, we have these words, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, in Matthew 16, 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Mark 8, 35, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Again in Luke 17, 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. That's the same message. And some gospel writers are doing it twice. Matthew, twice. Luke, twice. Mark, once. John, once. Why? 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 Well, this is why I asked you to stay in Matthew. Turn to Matthew 7. This is a truth we all know, but it's one that we just act like doesn't exist. 7.13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. What's Jesus saying? There's not a lot of people that will let go of their lives. What's he saying? He's saying there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people who are on that road to destruction and are going to stay there. Well, I want to close on that note. Say, boy, thanks, Rick. That's the most miserable message I've heard you preach this year. I'm all good. Um, Let's go back to John chapter 12. Jesus is saying death is the way to life, and Jesus is leading the way, and we must follow. If you look at verse 26, he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Um, I don't remember. You guys can tell me that if I made, if I made this statement here, because I don't remember. I've been thinking it for a long time, but I don't remember if I've ever made it. The suggestion that we should drop the word Christian. Have I ever said that here? Well, I can tell by your faces I must not have. Um, but I've been thinking this for a long time, that we should drop the word Christian. Someone said, what? Well, it just doesn't mean anything anymore. It's really become a meaningless term. Uh, it really doesn't, I mean, it really doesn't communicate any kind of message anymore. Um, what, what do you have to do to be a Christian according to our culture? If you're mentally assenting to a couple of truths and you're, you might not even, I mean, you, you, you might not even know where your Bible is or where you've even seen it last. Um, 
but you're mentally assenting to a couple of truths, and you're a Christian. Um, I mean, you, I'll let you be the judge. How out of touch of that is, is that with what Jesus is saying? I'll just remind you of what Jesus is saying. He says, whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What, why don't we know where our Bibles are? Why don't we, you know, why aren't our lives aligned with the Word? Why? It's because we're in love with our lives in this world. What's Jesus saying? You're going to lose it. You can call yourself a Christian, but you're going to lose it. You're going to lose it. Jesus is touching on something here I think we should take up. And that's the word follow. It's not so easy to say I'm a follower of Jesus, is it? What do you think of that? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Do you like that better? A follower of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is one who follows. Jesus says in this context, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. If we're going to serve Jesus, we could, we could call ourselves a servant too. That would be good. We could, we could start using servant. We could start using follower. As long as we, we, we have to add words, a servant of Christ. We need to add the of Christ or a follower of Christ. Um, he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where's Jesus going? He's going to the cross. Why is he going to the cross? Because that's the Father's will for him. So what exactly are we following? We're following the Father's will for us. We're following Christ's will for us. We are humbling ourselves and following Jesus. This is what it means to be a servant of Christ. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. This requires a major change. We can't mentally assent to a couple of concepts and call ourselves Christian. Um, we cannot continue to devote ourselves wholesale to our careers, houses, cars, status, glory, wealth, stuff, 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 and more stuff. Our lives and hearts have to be devoted to him, don't they? Um, so... Here we have some Greeks that are seeking Jesus. We need to do more than seek Jesus. We're called to serve him, and to serve him we must follow him. But there are two blessings in verse 26 here. And these two blessings here we need to hold on to, and that's a good place to close. Notice what he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And here's the first blessing, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Where are we going to find Jesus? If we wanted to join the Greeks and go up to Philip, Philip, where, where can we find? We, 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 want to, we want to see Jesus. Come and follow him and serve him. So you come and follow him and serve him, and guess what? Everywhere you are, he'll be right there with you. And it's only in that posture that we're, um, we're going to be with him. An old uh, professor, Edmund Clowney. Is anybody familiar with Edmund Clowney? I, I remember reading one of his books when I think I was clear back in Geneva. Um, he said it this way, the call to Christ is the call to service. He's saying exactly the same thing here. The call to Christ is the call to service. Um, if we're not serving Jesus we're not following Jesus because he calls us to follow him as his servants, doesn't he? But here's the blessing. Here's the first blessing. Here's the first blessing. You ready for the first blessing? Behold, he is with us always to the end of this age. He gives us that blessing in Matthew 28, doesn't he? And he gives us that message, you see, after he has called us to serve him by doing what? preaching the gospel all over the world. You see, it's after he's given us our marching orders that he says to us, I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. Does that make sense? Now, uh, at the end of verse 26 here, if anyone serves me, here's the second blessing. The Father will honor him. 
the Father will honor him. So there's two blessings. One, Christ will be with us. Two, the Father will honor him. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, uh, for uh, this message that, uh, Father, really, Lord, we must confess that um, 21st century American Christianity is indeed so out of touch with these verses. Oh, Father, we, uh, we come to you uh, this morning, Father, and uh, Lord, we, we do confess. Uh, I, I can confess just how much my own life has been out of step with these verses. Well, Father, we look to you, oh Lord, as, we, as we're following you through John's gospel, and here we are seeing you, getting ready to take up your cross and carry your cross. And Father, as we, as we glean from John, as we, as we go from John's gospel elsewhere, and we see, uh, Father, the parallel constructions that you've given of these verses, now you make it really clear that if we're going to serve you, we're going to have to deny ourselves and take up our cross, and we're going to have to follow you. But, oh, Father, you've given us that great blessing that, um, and Jesus is giving us his promise that uh, as we follow in, in, in humble service and obedience, there, there he is with us. And, um, Father, um, this isn't any kind of works righteousness that we're trying to advocate. We're just recognizing that, Father, as you've come into our lives and moved our hearts with your grace, uh, this is the posture we're to take, and, and here is the blessing as we take it. Uh, as we take this up, there you are with us. And, uh, Lord, what a great blessing it is to be honored by the Father. Oh, Father, we desire and desire for everyone here that when this short life is over, that each one of us will receive that honor by hearing the wor words, well done, good and faithful servant. So, Father, work these graces into our lives, O Father. Help us to take these passages seriously, not to brush them off and not to cause them to die the qualification of a thousand deaths, um, not to take uh, any notion of election or predestination and whitewash them, but, Father, that we see that we, we must follow you. Um, we have a responsibility to serve you and to follow you. And, oh, Father, we pray that, Lord, you, you would move us uh, by your grace. There's none of us who could do this in our own strength, but we pray that, Lord, you, you would move us to do just that, oh, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen.